When I whet my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance upon mine enemies and I will repay those who hate me. O Lord, raise me to thy right hand and count me among thy saints. Obviously, when you evolve inside an animal body localized in space and time, you get a hellacious set of reflexes and muscles designed to deal with immediate threat in the environment. But at the core of the oyster is, you know, this portal into universalism, which we have denigrated to what we call the imagination. Uh, it, it is a, it is, there is a third eye. The third eye exists, but it doesn't look out at this world. You've got two perfectly good eyes for doing that. The third eye looks out at the holographic matrix of informational totality. And then the problem for that form of perception is um, filtering. As a lump of salt thrown in water dissolves and cannot be taken out again, though wherever we taste the water, it is salty. Even so, beloved, the separate self dissolves in the sea of pure consciousness, infinite and immortal. Separateness arises from identifying the self with the body, which is made up of the elements. When this physical identification dissolves, there can be no more separate self. This is what I want to tell you, beloved. My tray. One of the reasons why I uh, chose to upload this uh, Terrence McKenna talk is that in this talk he really gets into something that I cover pretty much in every episode and it's probably the main point or topic that I espouse every time. And that's the unity between God and man, how man has the spark of God within him. So in this talk, McKenna, he noticed a, a license plate and the license plate said, man thinks and God knows. And there's a lot to that because the way I see it also, and he goes over it in the talk, God, because the guy put it two times, he puts man thinks and God knows. And then he bought a second of the same bumper sticker, cut it in half and reversed it. And put God knows, man thinks. And he again, he gets into that, but what he's saying is that God knows that man is thinking. You know, to try to reach that Godhead or that position that the Supreme God has. Not that man is God, 
but we have the spark of God in us. And our purpose or point here is to edge closer and get closer to his mindset. I don't know if it's as a form of evolution or ascension, but he gets into really deep detail into that. So fo focus on that as he, as he speaks because um, it can get slippery if you're not following his syntax and his vocabulary and like how he gets into it. McKenna is a trip. But you know, it, it again, it's going to improve, evolve, and add some real, real meaning to your day-to-day -day existence. You know, the guy's beyond profound, man. So let's get into this talk where Terrence McKenna gets into man thinks and God knows. Check it. This is episode 177, and I'm your host, Miguel. Everything you hear in this episode is Fair Use Creative Commons license. Today we're going to listen to a talk by Terrence McKenna. If you are a frequent listener to the show, you'll recognize his voice. There's some instances where I uh, actually should remember to give speakers credit and such, and I get wrapped up in the episode and, and neglect to do it. But um, definitely Terrence McKenna deserves recognition. Uh, Terrence McKenna was born in 1946 in Panoa, Colorado, and he died in 2002 in San Rafael, California. So... Terrence McKenna is an individual that it's really hard to put a title or a label to him and to his work. So I'll make an effort here to, to do my best of what Terrence McKenna is to me. And to me, basically, first and foremost, uh, Terrence McKenna was a prophet. He was a shaman and he was a bard. Bard is an old uh, Irish term from the Irish tradition. But I guess if you had to fit him into a box, he was an ethnobotanist, an author, a speaker, a historian, a philosopher, a chemist, and a cultural physicist, I guess you would say, if that word exists, if not, it exists now, and just an all-around badass genius, which our planet was fortunate enough to have him amongst our ranks, and he went way too soon in my opinion, but you know, Terrence McKenna lives on forever in his, uh, in his talks, I recommend you guys go to YouTube and just click on any talk that he does and just bear with him and listen to him because the guy has a mind that's so expansive. I mean, listening to him, you could literally feel the neurons in your brain kind of uh, expanding as he speaks. So in this talk, do yourself a favor listening to this. You don't play this at 1.5 speed or 2 speed. You know, you listen to this normal speed and you need to really play pay close attention to him as he speaks because he just drops references of philosophers and books in Finnegan's Wake and just Pascal and Whitehead and Chardon and Plato. I mean, he, he's a genius mind and he integrates history, philosophy, chemistry, ethnobotany, Buddhism, the Tao. I mean, he's, he's a genius. He's a genius and he's someone that I think is w way underrated and way underrecognized. Um, he's not everybody's cup of tea. Some people listen to him and they kind of start uh, fiddling with their cell phone or, you know, putting on a PS2 game, a PS2 or whatever, whatever game is relevant now. I'm not a gamer. So, yeah, he's, he's uh, a tremendous mind, you know, and listening to him will do nothing but do you good, okay, as far as uh, expanding your mind and, and your... Uh, your perception and your horizon, you know. So, 
stick with it, listen to it, get what you can out of it. And you probably have to play it a couple of times to actually get a, the best comprehension you can from his talks. Especially in the beginning if you're not familiar with him. He has a very expensive vocabulary, so it's not like he's trying to show off. Or it's not like he's trying to be very, um, like he's trying to pontificate on something. You know, the difference between somebody pontificating and someone that is dropping real knowledge is that person pontificating are usually politicians, salesmen, and people that babble on and on like they're trying to persuade you to believe or buy or engage with something they're selling, like snake oil. And with McKenna, nothing is further from the truth. This man, I can't even put it into words. He's just, he's he's been life-changing for me. One of the, you know, one of the biggest uh, people that altered my perception and my reality and my knowledge base, you know, by listening to him. In this talk, Terrence McKenna reflects and makes observations on a bumper sticker that he noticed on the highway. And it was a real simple, simple bumper sticker. And uh, he just gets into it from there and he just takes off. So let's get into that. And I just don't want to add too much to this because uh, this is going to be very, very, um, very dense material. So again, hopefully you enjoy it. I'd like to get a little feedback from you guys to see what you think of this talk and what you think about McKenna, what you think about the podcast, as you know, my information. Uh, my email is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My YouTube is Alpha Male Buddhist. My Instagram is also Alpha Male Buddhist. And yeah, so I'd like to get some feedback on this. And thank you for you listeners. And let's get into a little bit of Terrence McKenna. Yes. We closed last night, or we discussed yesterday, a bumper sticker that I saw driving down here. And the bumper sticker said... Uh, Man thinks, God knows. And then someone had bought a second copy of the bumper sticker and cut it apart and reversed it and put it under it. So it said, man thinks, God knows. God knows, man thinks. <laughs> now it seemed to me there was a lot going on in what was attempting to be expressed here. First of all, something about God, that God knows, that God exists in a superior state of intellection. Plato said time is the moving image of eternity. My notion of God's cognition is simply the regarding of all points in the space-time continuum with equal clarity. God knows the limited program of knowing is thought, cognition, man thinks. This is what man can do in imitation of the all-knowing and omniscient example of God. But implicit is that this is somehow an, a limited undertaking, this thinking of man. And, and uh, some of you may recall the famous comment of Pascal that... Uh, Man is a reed bent by the wind, and then Pascal added, but a thinking reed. So then the second half of the conundrum was that God knows, man thinks. 
Now this, I thought, was very interesting because it seems to imply a relationship between the limited project of knowing, which is human thought, and the completed project of knowing, which is omniscience. God knows, man thinks. In a way, what this is saying is that God knows that man is making his way toward God. God knows man thinks. God knows that man is participating in the same project of being that God regards from this higher dimensional space. And so then this meditation on these four lines closes with the recurso, which returns you then to this realization that what we are talking about is the project of knowing, Heidegger called it, carried out on two levels, on the level of omniscience and on the level of limited being. So then I meditated on this after we discussed it yesterday, and I thought tonight it might be interesting then to talk about the thinking project of that is the essence of humanness on one level, the thinking project which has as its vector, um, I call it concrescence, following Whitehead's Neoplatonism, one could call it God, Teilhard de Chardin called it the Omega Point, but the, the, the um, process by which knowing transforms itself from some kind of, kind of aboriginal uh, apperception of the possibility of God into union with God. And the process that lies between these two points is the story of the evolution of human consciousness, or more properly speaking, human history. And the interesting thing, I think, about uh, the Western religions generally is their insistence on um, the tangentiality of God and history, that God was something to be realized in the life of each individual, but that there was also somehow a collective drama of redemption that was stretched out over a very large period of time. And history then becomes the theater, you see, of the struggle between good and evil for the redemption of the human soul. And from the modern point of view, uh, or let's be more frank, from my point of view, <laughs> this is... Uh, primarily something to be analyzed within the context uh, of language and our myths about it and its evolution and its potential future evolution. So I, and this is in my personal life, the, the great mystery to me because I feel that I, my intellectual style is that of a scientist and I take very seriously science, and yet my, not only my faith, but my uh, experience has led me to believe that the world is not 
a construction of space and time and matter and energy, that that mapping is uh, insufficient, that the world is instead some kind of a uh, linguistic construct. It is more in the nature of a sentence or a novel or a work of art than it is in the nature of these machine models of interlocking law that we inherit out of a thousand years of rational reductionism. The, the world only behaves as science says it should when we confine our engagement with it to information that is at a great distance from us, like reading the New York Times every day. If you read the New York Times every day, few miracles will occur while you are engaged in that activity. Essentially what is happening is you are getting your cultural programming for the day, all your switches if any need being need to be reset by cultural values are reset at that point. But when we recede into what I call the primacy of immediate experience, the, the rules and models that we've been handed by science and uh, what's called common sense are just totally found to be inadequate. And I don't mean when we perturb ordinary consciousness with psychedelic drugs. I'll speak about that in a moment. But I simply mean when we go into solitude, when we go into wilderness, when we endure great travail in our lives, or when we put ourselves in extraordinary alien circumstances, then it's as though the membrane between the ego and something else, which we could call our guardian angel or the Jungian unconscious or the overmind, something like that, the membrane grows thin and the world loses its, um, what do I want to say, its mundane character. And instead, things previously mundane begin to become charged with psychic energy. They become carriers of meaning. They become carriers of meaning. This is very peculiar. At, at a low level, it's not so astonishing. It's a kind of generalized opening to the world. Because everything is imbued with significance. That tree, that person, that greeting, that conversation is imbued with a kind of depth and significance that is satisfying. It's like living deeply, living deeply. But this phenomenon can proceed to a deeper level of introspection and relationship to the exterior. And in that case then, this significance, which everything was previously seen to have, begins to compress or densify, and the world begins to dissolve into animate intelligence. Now, at this point, um, 
if you didn't bargain for this, you're probably very concerned about your mental condition. And if you aren't, your friends are. Because what you're saying at this point is, the rivers talk to me, the trees whisper in my ear. What you're recovering is the meaning. That's all, the meaning that is self-evident in nature, but that we block. The meaning is so pregnant in everything that it can actually articulate itself in your native English tongue. And, uh, you know, talking rocks, talking trees, talking boulders, we define this as uh, pathology. It means, uh, in technical jargon, a severely diminished ego is in danger of overwhelmment by uh, material from the inchoate and disorganized unconscious. Well, but what's actually happening is that for the first time in somebody's life or experience, they are meeting the resident meaning in reality with its force, unblunted, by uh, conditioning and denial. And um, this is some kind of a linguistic process. We, and all nature, I think, swims in some kind of sea of signification of which we are, in the same way that the amphibians were able to drag themselves out of the primitive oceans of this planet uh, into air and exist in a completely different dimension, we, whether grandly or perversely the verdict is not yet in, we dragged ourselves out of the sea of telepathic interconnected signification that united all life and we exist panting and pop-eyed in this other dimension called history, ego awareness, presence of self, sense of loss, anticipation of gain, all of these uh, dimensions of experience really have been added to what was previously the animal Tao, just the howling at the moon Tao of animal existence. And to this we have added, you know, a dimension of future anticipation, a dimension of regret, a dimension of how do I make choices, and so forth and so on. Um, there is not a... I don't put a, a moral uh, judgment on this, but it has to be said that in the tradition of the West, this has been viewed classically as the fall. This is the fall into names instead of realities, into uh, constructs of reality rather than reality itself. And this has now been uh, inculcated into each and every one of us as, you know, both the glory and the, and the trauma of human existence, which is our extraordinary ability to reside in and be in language. So, for instance, you know, I've made this example before. A child lying in a crib and a hummingbird comes into the room and the child 
is ecstatic because this shimmering iridescence of movement and sound and attention, it's just wonderful. I mean, it is an instantaneous miracle when placed against the background of the dull wallpaper of the nursery and so forth. But then mother or nanny or someone comes in and says, it's a bird, baby, bird, bird. And this takes this linguistic piece of mosaic tile and, and places it over the miracle and glues it down with the epoxy of syntactical momentum. And from now on, the miracle is confined within the meaning of the word. And by the time a child is four or five or six, there, no light shines through. They're, they have tiled over every aspect of reality with a linguistic association that blunts it, limits it, and confines it within cultural expectation. But this doesn't mean that this world of signification is not outside, still existent, beyond the horizons, the foreshortened horizons of a culturally validated language. Well, so then classically the path through this has been through use of psychedelic plants or uh, some form of ascetic practice or fasting or prayer and meditation, whatever, some way of breaking through. And it is literally presented as a breaking through, a penetration to another level that culture is an imprisoning bubble of interlocking <laughs> assumptions that are like a, um, a collective hallucination. I mean, I hate to say it because it's a recursive metaphor, but culture is like a delusion of some sort because it isn't true, of course. It isn't true if you're uh, a Witoto it isn't true that you came from the piss of the anaconda god when he had to get out of his canoe at the first waterfall. That's not really true, but that's your cultural myth and you live inside it. Our cultural myths, that the world is made of things called new masons and anti-protons, is of course not true either. But it's a linguistic construct that we culturally validate and live inside. And these cultural myths give permission for certain things. Basically, they give permission to ignore certain kinds of realities. So our language is uniquely set up to ignore, for example, the suppression of femininity. It's also uniquely set up to suppress the statistically uh, uh, infrequent we really have no patience with that. We have an assembly mind mentality. What we're interested in is that things run smoothly. One can imagine a completely different mentality that cared nothing for statistical norms and only pursued the miraculous. I mean, India, in a way, is that society. They don't give a hoot for, you know, how it works on the humdrum level, but the, the, the alien, the peculiar, the other, the unexpected is revered, adored even. 
So these kinds of cultural values shift, but now, now, we are in a global culture with the combined understandings of five, six, seven hundred language groups and half that many literatures being poured into a global database where some people are assimilating enough of this to begin to play their part in the creation of a, a kind of global meta-program for language. And uh, I think it's interesting to talk about the form that this may take, because I see this as our, uh, this is not our salvation, but this is the angel of our salvation. If we can transform and remake language, then we can have the conversation that we must have in order to save ourselves. But we cannot save ourselves until we have a language adequate to the problem that we're facing. And uh, English just won't do it because English is a language of subject opposite, uh, subject object opposition. It's a language of a past, present, and future. And the kind of world we're living in is not that kind of world. Now, toiling in the background, misunderstood and uh, unnoticed for centuries, have been mathematicians laboring to create what they call meta-languages of description that seem to them very satisfying, to the rest of us very bewildering. And a question worth asking is, why is it that this language, mathematics, which we have so much trouble understanding, seems so tremendously powerful when it comes to the description of nature? This is not a trivial question. Why should numbers, in a sense the most abstract quintessence of the human mind, have anything whatsoever to say about the topology of three-dimensional space and time. It isn't clear. What I believe is happening, and we talked about this last night, generally in the form of a conservation of novelty throughout the history of the universe. But I tended last night to present the universe as a material thing. I spoke of atoms concressing into molecules, into organic creatures, into thinking beings with civilizations and so forth. But another way to think of this is a kind of take a spiritual x-ray of the material universe and then say if matter is merely the vehicle of the transformations that we call the life of the universe, well then what is the inner dynamic composed of? What is it that is striving? What is it that bootstraps itself forward? What is it that self-reflects? Well, I think what it is, is it's actually information. Information is some kind of... Um, ontological modality that is capable of organizing any system in which it inhabits into self-reflection. So you pour information into matter and you get back DNA capable of making life. But 
you know, there is a persistent spiritual tradition backed up by psychedelic and shamanic experience that says that there are also hierarchies of incorporeal and disincarnate intelligence that is nevertheless highly organized. Well, until the advent of the computer, I think we were just pretty much at a loss to form any conception whatsoever of how you could have consciousness without uh, a body. But it, the computer shows us that you can have large-scale systems which have degrees, and then, you know, there's a long philosophical wrangle, which we can just stand there for another time, degrees of sentience in operating systems. So then it, it seems to mean that information is the thing which uses matter, uses light, uses spirit, uses whatever it can put its hands on to organize itself into higher and higher levels of self-reflection. Well, then, to what end? I mean, what is all this? Is it just an innate drive toward totality? Or is it a process which exists completed in some higher dimensional space, and we are somehow trapped in a lower dimensional matrix, and we have to, go, uh, we have to endure the illusion that it is incomplete? I mean, I don't have answers for these things. This is the business of theologians, basically, to tell us where we are in this universal machine. But I think that uh, what we can do to enrich our uh, experience and to feed data into our heuristic models is to begin to think in terms of language as the material that we need to work with instead of uh, public opinion or matter or even energy. It's meaning that we need to coax into our lives. Number one, as meaning enters our lives individually, we, became, we become more capable of raising our voices both in joyous song and in political protest, if necessary. My whole shtick, and the whole shtick of the psychedelic experience, I think, is reclaim immediate experience. Realize that you outvote all parliaments, police forces, and major newspapers on the planet. Because, who knows, they may be illusions complicated phenomenological forms of analysis can be carried out to show that their existence is in considerable doubt. But if you carry out this phenomenological reduction, you will discover that it reinforces the notion that you must actually exist and be real. So therefore, you start from that, that nub of immediate experience and real being. And extrapolation outward should be very provisional. I mean, I don't know uh, how Buddhism handles this. My, I, I, um, I grant you all a strong possibility of existing 
but I'm not nearly as sure about you as I am about me. And, and I don't think any of you should be any sure, more sure of the rest of us than yourself. I mean, the world could be anything, you know? It could be a solid-state matrix of some sort. It could be an illusion. It could be a dream. I mean, it really could be a dream. So, it... Uh, it pays to stay on your toes, I think. In practical terms, what does all this come down to besides that we should speak from the heart clearly and with our minds engaged? Well, I, th I think that, remember I said we should see language as the stuff with which we work rather than matter. And that means uh, creating a technology of the sayable making the complete understanding of new puns a national priority on a par with weapons development. It means exploring uh, the real implications of substituting Finnegan's Wake for the Constitution, this sort of thing. Because what we're doing, you see, is, is, is pulling the beard of the linear printheads who really believe all of this stuff, who really are lost in the labyrinth of the, of the political errors of the last 500 years, it isn't going, we can't uh, overwhelm them by force of arms, nor should we wish to. Uh, they can actually be teased out of existence because they themselves feel their position to be so ridiculous. It's very interesting how uh, the way the collapse of our enemy in the Soviet Union has exposed the absurdity of our previous positions. All our previous positions are now exposed as absurd, but people don't draw the obvious conclusion. It must also mean then that our present position is absurd. <laughs> And so it's tremendously liberating. Our culture is, is ruined. It's, uh, it's a disgrace from which we can now simply walk away. Well, then the question is, into what? And I believe that our persistent fascination with psychedelic states of mind since prehistory forward has been because in the psychedelic state from the you know, from the very beginning, there was an anticipation of the very end. And the very end still lies ahead of us. What it is, is that our nervous system is in the process of evolving us through a linguistic transformation where language, which at the beginning of the process was something that you heard, at the end of the process becomes something that you actually see. And this simple shift from seeing to hearing is the key to our being able to finally recognize each other and communicate. Print and linearity and what's called ear bias for language is what has shattered our sense of ourselves as a collectivity. 
a positive way of putting it is to say it's also what created the idea of democracy, individual freedom, labor unions, the vote, all of these atomized notions of human obligation and political participation arise out of print. But so do ideas like that we're all alike, because letters from printing presses on pages are all alike. The idea that products should be mass-produced out of mass-produced subunits this is a printhead notion. It could never have occurred to anyone outside of a printing press culture and never has. These ideas have imparted to our existence a tremendous material opulence and intellectual poverty and spiritual uniformity. And now, literally, we have to illuminate our civilization. We have to take its shoddy, spiritually empty Bauhaus skeleton and illuminate it, psychedelicize it, let a thousand paisleys bloom. Uh, in other words, release the design process from a commitment to material values. Well, how can you do that? Because the bottom line of material values is the bottom line. It costs. The reason we build in the Bauhaus style, for whatever reason we got into it, we now build in that style because it's the cheapest around. And once you start adding filigrees and changing things, costs soar. How can you do that? in a civilization with a cult of democratic values, individualism, and print-created linear uniformity. Well, the only way you can do it is you have to drop design costs to zero. The only way you can do that is if you build virtually. This means you build in an electronic dimension that is added on to ordinary cultural space like an orthogonal dimension. In other words, it's like a TV that you walk into. It's called cyberspace. And in cyberspace, things are built out of light. <coughs> so it costs as much to build Versailles as it costs to build a hamburger stand. Because Versailles and the hamburger stand are just two programs that to look exactly the same on disk. So what this means is that the previous set of class-created values based on the acquisition and control of matter begin to break down. This is already happening in America on one level where, you know, to live as a middle-class person is to live on a better level than the Mughal emperors ever dreamed of. I mean, what Mughal emperor could stride to his refrigerator and see cases of French mineral water, <laughs> juices from the South Seas, pomegranates from South America? Eat your heart out, Mughal Delhi. No chance. So, uh, in a sense, we're beginning to create this leveling, but we have created it by looting the material resources of the rest of the world. Conceivably, it can be created in a virtual space where we would all uh, live in this world, a rather monkish existence. But, you know, there's that wonderful passage in Finnegan's Wake where he says, he's speaking of the red light district of Dublin, which is called Moikane, and he says, here in Moikane, we flop on the seamy side, but up Nient, prospector, 
You sprout all your worth and you woof your wings. If you want to be phoenixed, come and be parked. Well, he was advocating death as a solution to life's problems. If you want to be phoenixed, come and be parked. Uh, my solution is not so radical. I think if you want to be phoenixed, come and be parked at your local virtual reality arcade. And then you can be phoenixed in, in several ways. Well, some of what I'm saying here is, uh, is facetious. We talked last night about Stan Tennant's wonderful object. Uh, for those of you who weren't here, this is a man, a Kabbalistic scholar, who has developed a piece of sculpture such that when you illuminate it from a certain angle, the Hebrew letter Aleph appears as a shadow. And then you move the light slightly, and Aleph turns into Bet. And then you move the light slightly, and so on. In order, his sculpture produces all of the Hebrew letters as shadows from this beautiful form, which he calls the lily. And uh, uh, it ties in with the, an experience that I had that... Well, first let me talk a little bit more about this lily thing that Tenon has discovered. He also made one for Demotic Greek, which, you know, for those of us who thought it was proof positive that Hebrew was the language of God, this was a real blow to the <laughs> chest, but because he did one for Demotic Greek, too, and it works just as well, <laughs> implying, and he's working on Arabic, implying that... Perhaps such forms exist for all alphabets. And so then I was thinking about this last night, and I said, well, if there's a sculpture in, four dim in three dimensions that throws the two-dimensional alphabets, then obviously in a higher dimension there must be a form which throws into lower dimensions the sculptures that make the alphabet. So that means all alphabets, all letters, lead back to a hyperdimensional surface of some sort, which can probably then be described with some kind of weird fractal algorithm. And so then I thought, wow, this is a pretty Hebraic vision of what's going on here. We have the alphabets of local languages being generated from higher dimensional objects that are three-dimensional, that are then referent to still higher dimensional objects that through which the light of God's love passes, scattering out into the radiance of what can be said. And uh, in a way, this is sort of my vision of the millennium, that we will be resorbed into the word. You know, the whole story begins in principio et verbum et verbo caro factum est. In, in the beginning was the word, and the word was made flesh. The whole cosmic drama is the mystery of what it is for the word to be made flesh. Language is seeking to birth itself into the domain of concrete existence. That's obviously what the word made flesh means. And uh, it seems to me that if the word can be made flesh, this implies a reciprocity. It implies that the flesh can be made word. 
And this brings us back to what I was talking about at the very beginning this evening, which is the curiously literary nature of reality. That it's much more like uh, a, a novel by Thomas Pynchon than it is like an equation by Ilya Prigogine. And why is that? Is it because, in fact, the flesh is word? And that understanding this is the real task of uncovering our spirituality. Somehow it's a riddle, it's a conundrum, it's a koan. If we could correctly understand this, if the world did not disappear immediately, at least it would roll around in the palm of your hand like a spinning marble, as the I Ching promises. It's something about the recognition of the primacy of the word, that history is the process of the descent of the word into concrete expression, I didn't say matter, and that our relation to this retroflexive process is an ascent into the word, and a going toward the approaching mystery, and a meeting there in a domain of unknowability. Essentially, I mean, this is the casting into being that Heidegger talked about. This is the going to meet the stranger. This is the flight of the alone to the alone that is the driving force of Plotinus's mysticism. Well, that's really all I have to say about that. So, uh, let me see what time it is. How am I doing? Yeah, let's, uh, let's take some questions if there are any. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My website is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist. And check out my YouTube channel, Alpha Male Buddhist, and that's on YouTube. It is the podcast accompanied with video clips that integrate exactly with the podcast so it's motivational and inspirational. I also have promotional t-shirts. If you go to my website, alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com, you can see the promotional t-shirts there. Reach out to me. Also, if you have any show notes or any suggestions that you would like to hear on the podcast, just reach out and see if I can get that done. I've been getting some really Great emails and feedback from my listeners, which is great. So I want to thank you for listening and namaste.